Imagine being the person responsible for having to figure out how to sink a bunch of actors on a ship night after night after night, or bringing to life a giant palace, or taking an audience under the sea for an entire production. Well, that's what Adam Koch does, and he's on the Cultured Podcast today to tell us exactly how he does it. Welcome to the Cultured Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Corey, and together we'll journey into the unknown reaches of the art world. I'm 50. 50 episodes old. 50. Does anybody get that reference? <laughs> Molly Shannon, SNL. It's amazing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Look up Molly Shannon, 50 years old on the interwebs because um, it's a beautiful. But you guys, I'm saying that for a reason. We're literally 50 episodes old on the Cultured Podcast. That's right. We have produced and released 50 episodes. We also have very special sound effects that we have now incorporated into the show. But this episode, we are talking to someone pretty spectacular. And that is Adam Koch. But before we get to talking to the marvelous and spectacular set designer who is Adam, let me talk to you a little bit about what's inspiring me this week. And it is a term that I coined with my friend Teresa Ward. Teresa Ward is a productivity and process champion, and she owns a business called The Fiery Feather. She's phenomenally talented, and she's also a consultant for Frequency Media, my podcast production company. So she's really helped us maintain our culture and processes in that early stage startup zone. But we were talking the other night, and this is both of our first summer as a small business. And summer can be a really intimidating time because it's when everybody goes on vacation, it's when things slow down for most businesses. And when you're a scrappy startup that's bootstrapping, it can be a very intimidating, scary time. And so we coined this phrase called slow flow. And slow flow is when you allow yourself to just be. When you stop the anxious, vicious circles, the little anxiety monster that goes on in your brain that's telling you, oh my God, you might fail. Oh my God, what's happening? Holy crap, this is never going to work. You shut that little fucker up (laughs) and you say, I'm going to flow, fucker. I'm not going to be that person who self-sabotages, right? I'm going to allow this because more times than not, this is a time of opportunity. Those slow times allow you to work on your website. Those slow times allow you to experiment with things that you never got a chance to experiment with before. And they are times of growth. They're just times of growth that don't look the same as when you are back to back to back in meetings or, in our case, productions. I love this concept of the slow flow. And ever since we came up with it, we've been texting each other. Like, okay, a few people canceled meetings with us this week. Slow flow, slow flow. And I love it because it's a constant reminder that everything is exactly as it's meant to be. And the only danger around us, especially in this cushy-ass era of time, is the danger that we perceive. So what happens when we stop perceiving constant danger? Hmm. Something to nibble on. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, quite. All right, y'all. Well, I'm going to let you mull that over, but do it after our interview, because there's a lot to mull over with Adam. So without further ado, the builder of dreams, the creator of fantasies, it's Adam time. 
Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Let's just set the stage, pun intended. Absolutely. Well, my name is Adam Koch, and I'm a scenic designer or set designer for the theater, as well as um, live events and essentially anything else you need to design for that involves uh, environmental space. Well, you got to know me through my work down at CRMB Playhouse in Atlanta, but I live in Brooklyn and design shows all over the world, all over this country primarily. And with a specialty, I guess, in the way that you're, you have to follow your career a little bit. I mean, you follow your career and it follows you or something, but I guess I wound up in mostly a lot of musical theater. That's amazing. So is it vastly different to design for musical theater than it is to design for a play, for instance? Obviously, it comes down to the material from which you're drawing out of. I mean, plays are just word-based, dialogue-based, and therefore sometimes can have a more uh, restrained and contained kind of design, whereas music is itself is so expressive. I mean, it is pure expression. And so the reason I guess I'm, I'm drawn artistically to musical theaters because you have the chance to be as expressive as the music is in the design. So that's why designs for musicals sometimes can be a lot more expressive and colorful and abstract or suggestive, all, you know, all kinds of things that really wouldn't work for a play, maybe. Right. Fascinating. So, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show because we haven't ventured behind the curtain, so to speak, as much as we have ventured on the canvas or on the screen. So now we're really talking about this incredibly important component to live performance. The first place I want to start is how you got led to set design. Was this something that was always a part of just the way you saw the world, or did you fall into it, as so many of us do with our careers? If I look back to my youth and childhood and just look at the activities that I was naturally, innocently drawn to without any knowledge about, you know, industry or working or college or training or anything like that, but if I look back, essentially... I love making little models. I love music. I love dancing around. Obviously, my not obviously my mom and dad took me to the theater, and they were they're very cultured people, very active in the arts where I grew up, and so I got to see theater. And you know, without knowing that it could be a career, I kind of just naturally was kind of expressing all the things that it would eventually take to be a set designer. I mean, I was a, I was a good drawer, painter, and that kind of thing infamously rounded up all the kids in my neighborhood against their will and, you know, put on these plays that they had to be in. Puppets, I love, love, love puppets. I still do. And so, to my surprise, thankfully, all those things combined essentially are what it takes to be a set designer. It is fascinating to think about, especially with these really interesting and unique careers from a set design perspective or something that incorporates so many aspects of your brain. I mean, you're talking about engineering and artistry and like you said, sketching and also just a love of the theater and music and an understanding of music as expression. And I mean, you have to have a brain, you mentioned abstract concepts and uh, expressive versus colorful versus abstraction. And so a mind that can also connect all these different dots where we may not have realized there were dots to connect, right? So I always find it fascinating talking to somebody like you and all of these different artists and members of the cultured community who just seemed born for it. 
you know, and, and you think about this argument versus nature versus nurture and how all of these little aspects of yourself were slowly merging together to unite one day as a set designer. Absolutely. I think so many people have all different kinds of interests, but uh, not everyone gets a chance or is lucky enough to pinpoint the thing that will bring all those together. Although I'm, I have a feeling we're all here on Earth to find what that collective of all of our talents should be or could be. But I know I'm, I feel I feel very lucky that I, I figured it out. Right. That's a great point. Your parents did expose you to this world and via their own interest in the arts, you were able to explore your own. And that's, I guess, where that nurture component comes in. I was the same. I only knew I loved theater because my mom was like, what do I do with this girl and all of her energy? (laughs) All the energy. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Throw her on a stage. And I was like, yeah. So you talked about sketching. I have seen some of your sketches that you develop as part of your process, and they're so beautiful. Like, I would frame one of those. Um, <laughs> to you, it's just like, hmm, how am I, where, gonna, where am I going to put this? You're just, like, working things out in your brain. And I'm like, can I have a signed print, please? <laughs> so when did you first start? Did it start with, like, you sketching buildings and, and exploring depth? Probably drawing was the first thing, I mean, back to childhood, that was the first thing in that way that someone acknowledged that I was good at it. That seed of confidence when it comes to artwork was planted early, thank goodness. So much of design work across the board is, has some kind of computer element nowadays, but at the end of the day, I still love to sketch it out first just because just so my brain can figure it out. And now that I have a little momentum going in my life, I know that the directors and the creative teams I work for, I mean, everyone gets excited by a beautiful pencil or, you know, hand-drawn sketch. It's just part of human nature. Same thing with scale models. People just love miniatures. So if you can present a drawing that looks artistically rendered and a model, then people just get so excited. So let's talk a little bit about the ins and outs. I always like to dig into what the process of creation is. So from ideation and conception to actual execution in this case, is that a process that is the same every time? And does it look a specific way every time and is very repeatable? Or is it wildly different across the board? My gosh, I would say that like the invisible underlying structure of how I go through each show is almost the same, although it looks very different on the outside because, like I said, different titles, different scripts kind of have different styles and different flavors. You're definitely able to develop the process in a way that feels tailored to that script. But ultimately, you know, the, the process from reading it to be inspired to sketching, to the research, to developing it further into a model. I mean, there's kind of an internal recipe that I stick to, but it always looks different on the outside. So where does it start? You know, obviously the client comes to you. And, you know, is that client usually the director of the production? Well, ultimately in the theater world, the uh, artistic director of the whole theater, if you're talking about regional theater or the producer of the show in the commercial sense, they're going to hire the director. And usually the first thing they're going to ask the director is, who do you want to design this? And this is where designers do not have a chance to audition, so to speak, because the director is going to say, I want Adam to do the set. I want Catherine to do the costumes and I want Joey to do the lights. Ideally, they get hired for the show and they have an idea of the show and they kind of bring to the table the people they think that will be right for it artistically or people they know will be right for it just in the scale of the project and someone they can trust. First of all, it sounds like once you form a good relationship and sort of artistic partnership with a director that you're probably 
working with that director time and again. Ideally, yeah. I think in all areas of business or uh, creative enterprises, like the best case scenario is that you work with someone and they can't wait to work with you again, if not again and again and again. You know, if you're a designer or anyone out there and you find yourself working like at one place, but never again, or with one person, but never again, you should ask yourself right away, why isn't this person calling me back immediately? Or be like, I want you to be my designer or something like that. I can't help but think about it. Essentially, the designer and director, those kinds of relationships is kind of like a dating thing. And the first time you work with someone, like the first date. And you're kind of getting to know each other and there's a little back and forth and, you know, slowly warming up. And then relationships I have with directors who we've been working together for years now, it's like you're a married couple. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know what you want for there. I can do this and that and that. And, you know, you kind of have a, a secret language or unspoken language just because you're so close and so trusting like a relationship that you can really finish each other's sandwiches and sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And like every director has their, I mean, ideally has their particular flair, right? And has their particular preferences and ways of doing things. And so you also, I'm sure, get to a point with those repeat directors that you're working with constantly that you just kind of know, okay, we talked about this vision and I sort of know exactly what she means or he means when she or he says this. Just like in a romantic relationship, the fun of it is once you get going and you really you know each other and there's, you can have so much more fun with it. And it's not about that first date nervousness, so to speak. And you really have some momentum going together. It's really it's really a pleasure. And I'm sure you can push and pull a little bit more and you can test each other's limits and just like really explore. Because I just feel like creative partnerships where you are challenging each other in a kind, open way yield some really spectacular results. Absolutely. How many times have you worked with Brian Cloudis, who uh, is our episode two guest and is the artistic director of Serenby Playhouse? I think it's been probably six shows now down at Serenby Playhouse that we've worked on together. Wow. What, what have those shows been? Sleepy Hollow, Carousel, Miss Saigon. Oh, Cabaret, uh, Titanic. All of those productions are the ones that I've experienced of yours personally, um, and they're just spectacular. In this case, in particular, your work with Serenby is site-specific, and there's so many different factors to consider. And so I really want to dive into what it's like to design a whole world that your starting canvas is a wide open field, let's say, or the bank of a of a river, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. because I also think it's really fascinating what you can do within the confines of a black box or something, you know, like an actual theater. But I guess that brings me to my first question, which is, which is more challenging, bringing a world to life within a theater, which must have its own constraints or doing that outside in the middle of an open field, let's say. You know, for ages and ages, a theater that's inside in any kind of traditional architectural theater, the building that's designed to be a theater, whether it's proscenium or a thrust or a black box, like you said, for ages, it's always been the big question mark. That's, you know, the empty theater, the empty stage, what goes on the stage? And it really is a big question mark. But ultimately, for any kind of theater that's architecturally set up already, meaning the stage is one place and the audience is the other place, that relationship is already defined. So the only question mark really, although it's still a big question mark, is what goes in the box. Ultimately, the stage is still one place and the audience is still one place, even if the rest of the theater is decorated as well. But whereas in Serenby, I mean, there is, as opposed to one question mark for one box, it's like there's a million question marks all over the place, up in the sky, in the trees. It's like, 
that is much scarier because it's not only set design, but now I've realized it's site design too, as in like the whole site of the, where the audience is, where the parking is, bathrooms, the bar. I mean, it's like you really have to plan out this whole little mini city that will also have a show that happens every night. So frighteningly, but also excitingly to be able to say, okay, I think the audience could be here or maybe they're on both sides or, you know, you get, you really get to devise how the audience experiences the show from what angle are they far away? Are they right up close? Are they being led to the woods by candlelight? It could be, you know, any of the above. I imagine you experience what writers often experience, which is that we stare at the blank page and we're like, Oh man, this could be anything. And then also like, Oh man, this could be anything. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. You know, and, and the writer's block. So do you ever experience set designers block? (laughs) Well, the good thing, I mean, in terms of serum a little bit, but that's part of the, you know, the process that kind of has its ups and downs in my, in like the internal process of, of the set design. But luckily, with someone like Brian Cloudus, he spells out some of the big bullet points from the beginning. And then I have to collect all those and bring it all together. For instance, Titanic, he's like, the set is going to be in the water and the audience will be on the bank. I was like, all right. So the audience stage relationship is somewhat determined. We know that they're going to be facing one way and the set will be facing the other way. And so once he kind of sets out those basic parameters, because he's, you know, what he's so good at is pairing the title, the script with the right location in Serenby. You mentioned this is the way that the stage is going to face. This is the way the actors are going to face. This is which isn't so obvious because sometimes, like you said, the audience might be following the actors around or it could be a totally circular set. So what are some of the other bullet points you hope are covered before you go in? What I've noticed is that a great director, a good director, will have several great ideas about very important parts of the show. A bad director is going to have a lot of ideas that don't have anything to do with important parts of the script. Like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if someone ran across with a big pink piece of fabric during that transition? I was like, well, that is great, but how does this help us solve the important plot point? Brian is the first version. So he, you know, right off the bat, the audience is on one side, the set or whatever it was going to be is in the lake. Obviously, he's like the sinking sequence. I mean, sinking and the drowning, all that, that's got to be numero uno as far as like what this is all building to emotionally and technically. Another one of his big bullet points for Titanic, part of his vision, literally, and you can, when he talks, you know, he looks up into the air and you can see him like seeing it in his mind, which is always a clue. But he, he's like, I see a big chandelier that comes out of the water in the beginning and, you know, submerges in the sinking and then rises again. You know, so the chandelier was a big part of it for him. There was a, a first design of Titanic that no one will ever see because it wasn't very good. And it was actually like as if you were looking down the other way. And it was like the long way of the ship because in my mind, I was, I don't know what I was thinking. I was still figuring it out. It was a big challenge. And I presented that to Brian. He's like, no, 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 <laughs> this is not right. It's not how I see it. And this is done. So finally we ended up with what you saw, which is a very impressionistic, I will say, side view of the ship, a cross section, if you will. And when I showed him that, he was like, yes, yes, yes. You know, because in his mind, you know, when you park in the woods, here and be farms, he wanted you to trim the corner. And there it is. It's like a boat. It's here. It's Titanic. It's like undeniably the ship of dreams that we all see in our mind, as opposed to what I had first proposed was like very overly abstract, not clear what it is like, you know, structure. It took us a little back and forth there to you know figure out the right flavor. But ultimately, he was absolutely right. And I'm really thankful for his direction. 
Right, exactly. So I'm curious about how you bring all these pieces of set design together. So I think Titanic or even, I mean, Miss Saigon is a good example, but I think Titanic is possibly the best example because there were so many literally moving pieces and parts. There were moving platforms. There was like, you know, the big chandelier on a pulley system or whatever it was. You designed the set. And then are you responsible for sourcing all the different pieces of that set and sort of connecting all the people responsible for making those pieces and parts work and happen? Well, just to make sure everyone knows how simple, in a way, the process really is, the closest cousin or, you know, parallel would be architecture. And, you know, the architect is going to prepare the design plans, the model, the elevation, any and all information that someone would need to make a budget, price out, and source all the materials from. And that gets handed over to, of course, an equally talented, by the way, staff of carpenters, welders, painters, all that kind of thing, prop people who are going to, you know, take those plans, take all those ideas, and A, check through them to make sure that they are feasible and doable and affordable. And then once that's all approved, then to, you know, take it and run with it and create sometimes their own sets of plans of how it's going to be built. The big answer is it gets handed off to people who are much more talented, I think, in different ways, of course, who bring it all to life. Right. So are you deeply involved throughout that whole process, though, and overseeing that process? Absolutely. I mean, again, like architecture, most of the time I'm not in the city where it's being built or constructed. So I, in my in this case, my associate designer, Stephen Royal, great guy, super talented, who helps me on every single project. The two of us are either on the phone or on email, you know, and trying to uh, talk and walk everyone through their questions as best as we can from afar. A lot of times they'll fly you down or you'll take a train just to go visit the set being built like midway through just to check in and make sure because, you know, seeing it in person is obviously a lot easier and more clear. That's cool. So how many shows do you design a year? My dream is to do fewer and fewer shows, but bigger shows a year. Right now, I think I'm, you know, not everything's a full set design, but probably about 24 projects. Maybe 16 of those are a full on, you know, full stage musical. But again, no one should say that like it's a badge of honor because isn't it more impressive to be doing like fewer and fewer and like better and better work? So I'm trying to get that number down. As opposed to like, oh, I'm doing 50 shows a year and no one ever sees me because I'm like completely buried. I don't think that's very attractive. Oh, man. So what's your favorite part about what you do? That's a great question. Certainly nothing beats the creative high of that first time when you sit down in musicals case, you read through the script and listen to the music and let it wash over you. And there's that first get to know you period of the material is so exciting because so many things are coming to mind and a little research. And again, back to drawing those first couple of days when you're just like sketching it out and getting to know it. Oh, that sounds amazing. It just like, it also just sounds like you're reading all of these amazing musicals all year, <laughs> you get to like bring them to life and immerse yourself in them. And to some people, that's their personal nightmares. But to me, that's literally my dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that and I 
I'm sure this is the case with whether it's with directing or acting or on stage or off stage, any any facet. And I, so I won't say that it's easy, but it is certainly an absolute pleasure to design for good material. I mean, solid, beautiful scripts, beautiful scores. I love to do. I always joke like the worst scripts have the worst designs because what am I supposed to do with this? It's not a good script. It's of course the set doesn't look that good. I mean, you can kind of polish it a little bit, but you'll never solve the problem of a bad script, even with the most beautiful design. Thank you so much, Adam. This was such a pleasure and so fascinating to peep into your world. Oh, yay. I I hope so. It was a real pleasure. Oh, Adam, he hath my heart. I am in awe of his art form. It's amazing. Adam is incredible. You can find him on the socials and you can find him online at adamcokeassociates.com. We'll have all the links in the show notes. But of course, if you go to culturedpodcast.com, check out the website, look into Adam's work and his sets that he has designed. They're absolutely stunning. And we'll see you next time. No, we'll hear you and talk to you next time on The Cultured Podcast. Just kidding. Keep it classy. Keep it curious. Keep it cultured. Visit culturedpodcast.com for show notes and subscription links. The Cultured Podcast is a production of my podcast production company, Frequency Media. I'm the host, Michelle Corey. Ina Garkusha is our fabulous producer. Becca Godwin is our wonderful associate producer. Our sound engineers are Cooper Skinner and Dante Hodge. And we're recording at Listen Up Audio in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen up.